The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Would you remain standing with me as we read Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8 this morning? For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them once again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up for contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for the sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Father God, we exist for one purpose. You have created us. You sustain us. You have gifted us all good things, all for the sake of your glory. We come into this place today seeking nothing other than that. Seeking the glory of your name and trusting that it is only there where we will find true and lasting joy. But Father, we confess that the burdens of this world, the sin of our own heart, just the heaviness of everything that goes on around us can often make that difficult. Father, we are terrified of the thought that we could come into this place and sit under the teaching of your word, cry out songs of praise to you, and leave this place completely unchanged because we are so consumed by the things of this world. So, Father, in the moments to come, we pray that you would strip that away. We pray that you would keep all distractions at bay. Father, we pray that you would break us down, give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, and lives that trust in the gospel that we see right here in the Holy Scriptures. Father, in short, we're asking you to do what only you can do. Change us. For our good and for your glory, would you change us? Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, trusting that when we ask these things in his name and according to your will, that they will be done. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we spent a large portion of our time together on the last Lord's Day setting the stage of our hearts for the final 24 hours of Jesus' earthly ministry. So it's Passover, that time each year when God's people were called to come to Jerusalem and present themselves before him. It would be there by the offering of a sacrificial lamb and through all the ceremony that accompanies it, that God's people would commemorate their deliverance from slavery in Egypt and his mercy in sparing them from his judgment. In addition to this commemoration, it was a time of anticipation, of looking forward to the final and ultimate redemption that would come with the Christ and the ushering in of his kingdom. Now we spoke last week about the rivers of blood that flow out of the back of the temple complex and down the Kidron Valley. The sights and the sounds and the smells of thousands of bleeding little lambs mixed with the joyous joyous tone of the entire celebration. That all of this was a picture. 
It was a picture of the price of sin. It was a picture of God's willingness to extend mercy to those that come in repentant faith to them. A living, breathing picture of the gospel coming together in this one place at this one time. And for those that saw beyond the pictures, for those that saw the reality of their own guilt before God, for those that saw that they were deserving of the infinite and righteous wrath of God, this was not only a time of thanksgiving, it was a time of reflection. It was a time of confession. It was an opportunity for God's people to hit time out for a moment and make absolute certain that their hearts had been turned in true, repentant faith towards him. Now, for a thousand years, God's people had been celebrating the Passover. We discussed last week that God couldn't have done any greater a job in setting the stage for the coming of his son, the true lamb of God, coming to lay down his life, not to have his life taken, not to be killed by the hands of priests, but by his own father. At that very time that the Passover lamb would be slain, that Jesus Christ would be crushed, and that that would please his father. And yet, despite all that God had done in setting the stage, despite all that God had done in making this picture clear, very few would actually see and believe. You see, most of the crowd, they had no real depth to their commitment. As soon as times got hard, they would abandon Jesus Christ. The religious leaders, those who knew the law and the ceremony of the Passover best, they were in open and direct opposition to Christ. And then even one amongst the 12, one of the apostles, one of the disciples that had been called and set apart and sent out in the authority of Jesus Christ, even one of they, them would seek to betray Jesus Christ under the darkness of night. And we're reminded yet again that knowledge of religious things a willingness to follow Jesus Christ for a season, even experiencing the true power of God in his son, Jesus Christ, is no guarantee of saving faith. It's no guarantee of eternal life. So with that, we return to Mark's gospel. I ask you to go ahead and stand to your feet once again. We're in Mark's gospel, chapter 14, beginning in verse 17, as we work verse by verse through this wonderful gospel. This is the word of God. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, we hit pause once again to plead with you to do what you can do. To make this book live to us, to open our eyes that we would see there your infinite holiness. That we would see there ourself, our sin, and our depravity. And yet then we would find our ultimate hope in Jesus Christ. So Father, we ask that you would make this book live to us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as you probably know, it is now Thursday night, and you'll recall that Jesus has done absolutely everything that needs to be done in order to prepare the way for the Passover. He sent two of his disciples, Peter and John, into the city of Jerusalem, and despite all the surrounding crowds, just this massive ruckus of people moving all up and down the streets, they were intended to find one man carrying vessels of water. They were then to meet that man and follow him into the home that he went Inside that home, they were going to meet the master, and they were going to say to him, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? The disciples obey. They go into Jerusalem, and they find everything just as Jesus has said. 
They've now secured the room. They've made all the preparations. And then this morning's text. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. So Jesus shows up with the others, and it's now time for the meal to begin. Now, I've outlined for you the way in which the Passover plays out on many occasions. So we're not going to fully unpack that now, but what you will recall is that this feast, it would have included four cups of wine. In between the drinking of each cup, there would have been a song that was sung. There would have been a prayer that was offered to God. And then interspersed throughout this entire thing would have been the singing of the Hillel. That's where we get our word hallelujah from. It simply means praise. That's Psalm 113 through 118. And then, of course, at the middle of all this would have been the lamb, that perfect and spotless lamb whose blood was shed. He had been taken to the temple. He had been sacrificed as a substitute on behalf of the people. And as that lamb came out, it was a reminder that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And yet at the very same time, it was a reminder that God is truly merciful to those who will come in repentant faith to him. Now, you'll remember that the first Passover was eaten with great haste. As the people prepared for their exodus out of Egypt, God had them to eat this supper with their sandals tied tight, their belts fastened around their waist, their staff in their hand. They would be leaving Israel, excuse me, they would be leaving Egypt in a great hurry. They didn't have time for all this pomp and circumstance, this long, drawn-out ceremony. But now, sitting in the land that God had promised them, even under the rule of the Romans, these people were able to eat this long, six-hour meal with no great outward threat, with no urgency, with no immediate fear upon them. They were able to recline there at the table, and that's what we read. They were reclining at the table and eating. Now, despite what Leonardo da Vinci might have you believe, the people were not sitting on high-backed chairs all on one side of a long rectangular table. Very likely, this table was built much more like a horseshoe. In addition to that, we read that the people reclined. This would have been part of what the man that had prepared the place for them, the man whose upper room they met in, this would have been part of what he provided for them in this furnished room. It would have been couches or perhaps mats that the people could recline on. The table would have been low, maybe 18 inches or only a foot off of the ground. And so the men, they would have all reclined. That's what you do at feasts like this. This signals the importance of it, that they would have reclined on their left-hand side with their left arm down like this, reclining with their heads towards the table and their feet sitting away. You picturing this? This is the way many of us eat picnics, isn't it? You go to the park, you spread out a mat, and everybody just, you're just chilling, hanging out, leaning on the left-hand side. That's, that's the scene here. And in the middle of all this scene, there's incredible emotion. While their bodies may be very much relaxed, I have to imagine that their hearts were filled with great anticipation. Number one, just the emotion of the feast. You have this whenever you go back home to mama's house for one of the holidays, or you gather there in your own place. Just the emotions that come with the remembrance of this feast and all the times that you've gathered before to remember what God has done. Looking forward in anticipation to what he will do. In addition to this, there was a buzz that was in the air from everybody wondering, could Jesus be Messiah? Could the kingdom really be coming and what is that going to look like? In addition to this, Jesus has told these men, I'm going to Jerusalem to lay down my life. I'm going to die and three days later I'm going to rise again. So surely there was just this torrent of emotions within these men, just tugging them all different directions. They probably didn't really know where to settle their heart. This is already a heavy event, but that now you add all of this upon it. And then in the middle, as the men are enjoying this feast, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. This is an absolute bombshell. Now Jesus has made no secret about what lies ahead of him. 
Not only has he said that he's going to lay down his life, but you remember in Mark chapter 9 that we read he said this, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. The Son of Man is going to be delivered. You remember the Greek word paradidomai? We studied it back then. It means to be handed over. It means to be given. And that same word is used here in this morning's text, paradidomai, but this time it's translated betrayed. You see, these men, they knew that Jesus was going to be handed over. They knew that he was going to be given into the hands of evil men that would demand his life. But they never had any idea that it would have been one of them that did the handing over. And that's what makes it betrayal. That's the difference. To be betrayed is to be double-crossed. It's to be treacherously handed over. It has to be someone close to you. You see, somebody that's not close, they can't really betray you. And who closer than an apostle? Who closer than one of the twelve? When they've been called out from among the disciples to be with Jesus in a very special way, to travel with him, to sleep with him out under the stars, to be sent out by his same power and authority to do mighty works, and then to be with him on this special night breaking bread. Dear friends, you don't break bread with enemies. Meals are times of safety. Meals are a place where you should be secure. To hand someone over, to betray them like this after sharing supper with them, this is way, way out of bounds. And that's what makes this treachery so grotesque. Betrayal. Does anybody long to be a betrayer? Does anybody look up to a betrayer? It's all the worst attributes that a man can have. He's a liar. He's ungrateful. He's unfaithful. He's selfish. He's dishonest. He's fake. He's hypocritical. He's cowardly. And as we know in this instance, he's greedy to boot. All the worst of what can be seen in a man coming together in this one singular act called betrayal. To pretend like you're a friend of Jesus Christ, but to act like a foe. To call a man brother, but to stab him in the death. Is there anything less honorable? Is there anything more detestable, more despicable than to betray one that you call brother? Is there anything more painful? You see, we can get it all twisted up in our hearts because we know that God is truly sovereign. Because we know that Jesus was in control of this entire drama. Because he knew everything that awaited him. He knew who the betrayer was when he called him. Because he knew what awaited him on the other side of the betrayal. We can forget the fact that this stung. This truly hurt. That's why we find the ultimate fulfillment to David's words in Psalm 55 playing out right here. Psalm 55, 12. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. This stung. This truly hurt the heart of Jesus Christ. That's why we read in John's gospel that Jesus became very troubled in his spirit. Not just about what awaited him, but that it would be one of these that reclined at his table who would betray him. As he reclined with those who were closest to him in all the world, you remember that there's a scene where Jesus is teaching inside a house and his mother and brothers, they've traveled north to come and call him home, to talk some sense into him, to tell him this thing has gone way too far and it's gotten out of control. Come back to your senses and return with us. And do you remember what Jesus said? He wouldn't go out. He looked to his disciples, those that were seated at his feet, and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Those who sit at my feet, hear the word of my father and do what it says. These are my mother, my brothers, my sisters. And these very same men now reclined with him at table here at the Passover. They had seen his love. They had seen his compassion. They had seen his mercy. They had seen his power. They had seen his perfection. They had gone out in the power of his word. They too had joined him in his work. They had experienced all that it meant to be with the Son of God. And now he reveals, it will be one of you who betrays me. 
one who reclines at this table today, one with whom I break bread on this precious night, it will be one of you who hands me over. But why did Jesus say that? What was the point in it all? I mean, he said it because it was true. He said it it was going to happen. But what was the purpose? Because the betrayal had already been set. And both Satan and the Sanhedrin and the betrayer, they were busy about their work. So what's the point in saying this thing, especially if you're not trying to talk him out of it? Especially if you're not going to allow any of the other 11 to stop this plan in its tracks? Well, thankfully, we get the explicit answer in John's gospel. John chapter 13. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to do a little bit of flipping back and forth today. Not too much. But this is the beauty of what God has done in giving us four gospel accounts. As we can see a more full picture of everything that happened. And we know that there was other things that happened on this night that Mark didn't record for us. And one of those things, of course, we read in Luke's gospel. We read that there was a a great uprising amongst the people. Yet again, the disciples were arguing about which of them was the greatest in the kingdom of God. This was a recurring theme. Jesus yet again reminds them that they're acting just like the rest of the world. That's the way that the world acts, but you are to be different. That true greatness in the kingdom of God comes through sacrificial service, not through demanding to be first. And then in John's gospel, it seems as though at this point, Jesus is going to give them an object object lesson. He's going to show them what true servant leadership looks like. He's going to show them what it looks like to be truly the greatest. And you remember the scene as Jesus takes his outer garment off and he ties it around his waist. He grabs a bowl and fills it with water, and then one by one he goes and washes his disciples' feet. Then he puts his garment back on. He takes his spot back at the table, reclining again. He tells the man, I've just given an example for you. You should so wash your brother's feet. You should so lay down your life. You should so serve others and refuse to be called first if you're going to be truly great in the kingdom. But then we read in verse 18, John chapter 13, verse 18, we read this. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Jesus is making clear, I knew who you are when I called you. I know the hearts of men. I knew who the devil amongst us truly was from the very beginning. I knew who you were when I called you. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Again, he's quoting a psalm. This is Psalm 41, verse 19. I'm telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. That's the point. That you may believe that I am he. Ego ami, I am. Over and over and over again throughout John's gospel, he is using this phrase. This Old Testament self-declaration from God, I am who I am. And he's saying to make clear to you that I am, the great I am. I'm telling you this thing before it happens, that even in this man's sin, even in this man's betrayal, even in his handing over the perfect son of God, he will only serve to further prove my identity to you. He's only going to serve to prove to you that I truly am God. And at the same time, this was resting these men's hearts so that they would know at every moment God hasn't been caught off guard. These things haven't gone off the rails Jesus hasn't changed his plan. These sins of these other men, they haven't destroyed his ultimate purpose in coming to destroy the works of the devil, that Jesus is still in control, and he chose the traitor for this very purpose. Not only that he would hand him over, but declaring it on this night so that these people might know that he is truly and decisively sovereign over any of this. So back to our text. Back to, back to Mark's gospel. We read in verse 19. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? Now, dear friends, we've done a great deal of beating up on the disciples during our time in Mark's gospel, and rightfully so. These guys are some real chumps at times. 
always building themselves up, constantly trying to seek greatness through the way that the world seeks greatness, so hard-hearted and slow to understand everything that Jesus has said. Even on this night, as he confronts them directly with the ways that some of them are going to fail him, denouncing, no way, Jesus, that's not going to happen. I mean, these guys had a lot to learn. They missed the picture big time often. And yet in this, what we see in this response, I submit to you this morning, what we see in the response of the apostles sitting around this table on this moment, this is the single most thoughtful, most right, most true and appropriate response we see out of the lips of the apostles anywhere in Mark's gospel except for when they confess Jesus is the Christ, the son of the most high God. They hear this horribly shocking news. It has to catch them off guard. In the middle of this already emotional filled night, this wonderful feast it's like just somebody scratching the needle across a record everyone stops when they hear this that the son of man is going to be handed over he's going to be betrayed by one of them you're going to hand me over to those who seek to destroy me and then one by one they ask lord is it i there's none of the usual cockiness even peter doesn't jump up and say well maybe these other guys but there's no chance it's me so it's one of the 11 don't say one of the 12 all that is gone in this moment they knew the weight of this. They knew that Jesus was telling the truth. And they knew that in this moment that they couldn't even trust their own hearts. They had seen how many times they failed. They had seen how fickle their emotions could be. And so they knew in this moment, Jesus was telling the truth, and I can't afford not to ask the question. And so one by one by one, they asked, Lord, is it I? In the middle of this chatter, this excitement, the anxiety, the expectation, the food and the wine, one of you will betray me. They probably sat for a minute in stunned silence. I have to imagine this, waiting for Jesus to give them a little bit more insight because they saw nothing in their own hearts that indicated that this was coming. They knew they were sinners. They knew they were weak. They knew they were imperfect. They knew they didn't understand it all. And yet they knew of nothing within themselves that would have told them that they were the betrayer. And yet one by one, as they go around the table, they ask, Lord, is it I? Am I the liar? Am I the coward? Am I the faithless one? Am I so deceived that I sit here at your table believing that I am truly with you and in the end I'm going to turn away and betray you, hand you over to evil men? Verse 20, Jesus says to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. So I'm not entirely sure just how, state, how helpful this statement is in determining who the traitor is. Here in Texas, we immediately have this picture of sitting down to dinner and you get chips and, and red sauce and it comes in little bitty bowls that you share just with the people sitting right around you and so we immediately have this idea that Jesus must be talking about someone specific when he talks about them dipping in his bowl and that that's going to give away who it is but it seems to me that what's happening here is that this is right in the middle of the first cup of wine and the second you may recall that it's at this point in the meal when the people would have washed their hands. That would have made a perfect time for Jesus to wash the disciples' feet, to talk to them about their need for ongoing cleansing. It seems to me that it was also at this point when the people would have brought out a large bowl of what's called hereset. Hereset is this mixture of wine and nuts and fruit, and it makes this paste. It's meant to resemble the mortar that they used to make bricks back in slavery in Egypt. You know, everything on that table, it resembled something else, the bread, the lack of leaven, it resembled a separation from the world and the great speed with which they had to leave. The bitter herbs, it represented the bitterness of slavery. We already know what the lamb represented. But this, this said, it would have come out in a large bowl and the people would have taken some flat, some unleavened, unleavened bread and they would have broken it. And everyone would have dipped from this same bowl. 
So I don't, I don't believe that that in and of itself tells us who this man is. And so I, again, I turn to John's gospel because he gives us even greater clarity in this. Back to John chapter 13. He says that right after this shocking declaration that one of them is going to betray him, we read in verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So any of you that have studied John's gospel, you know who this is. The disciple whom Jesus loves. This is the self-declaration of the apostle John himself. From this point forward, he doesn't use his name any longer. This is the way that he refers to himself. Now, Jesus loved all of his disciples. But dear friends, if you're going to be identified by anything, what greater than this? Christ loves me. The most important thing in my life, the thing you most need to know about me, you may never learn my name. You may never know my hobbies. You may never know my talents. But what you most need to know about me is Jesus loves me is that I am loved by Christ. So John is reclining by Jesus' side, the one whom Jesus loves. Verse 24, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus whom he was speaking of. So apparently Peter wasn't as close to Jesus as John was. Maybe Peter's across the table or something like this, but Peter is now reclining. He looks over to John and he says, ask him. Ask Jesus who he's talking about. You're right there, ask him. So we read, verse 25, so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, I reference this scene often, don't I? I'll tell you, as I wrote these words in my office this week, I had tears in my eyes. Just the beauty of this. This is a wonderful night, and it ends in great darkness. This meal is a truly precious time. Jesus and the 12, they're eating and they're singing and they're thanking God for all that he has done. It's on this night when he's going to promise them the sending of the Holy Spirit. He's going to pray to the Father for their protection and for their perseverance. And yes, the deceiver is there. Yes, the betrayer is there. And yes, he's got this dark thing in his heart. It's going to end in great darkness. But you see great tenderness even in the middle of this. Is this one who Jesus loves. He leans back against him. Peter urges him. He says, ask him. And he leans back against Jesus. Do you remember how they were laying? I told you they were on their left-hand side. They're laying on their arm with their feet back this way and their head here. And so for John to lean back, about Je- back against Jesus, he must have been at the right-hand side, right? I'm going to lean back against you. So he's at the right-hand side of Jesus, and he leans back against him, and his face would have been here, just right next to Jesus' face, or maybe here, right at his chest. And again, I tell you, I could cry right now as I long for that day, the resurrection where I will see him as he is, and I will be in my physical body. And I don't know how this is going to work. It's going to be a gigantic dog pile as everyone runs to be with Jesus, I want to lay against Jesus. I want my head on his bosom. I want to feel his beard on my cheeks. I just want to be with him. I want to be near him. That's the promise of heaven. Not ice cream cones and baseball. Not rubbing a little fairy lamp and getting whatever it is that you want. It's being with Jesus Christ. Being close to the one who loves you. It's seeing him as he is and being as he is. No longer with the stain of sin and the weight of guilt and all the rest of this world dragging you away. No longer with dulled affections that make him look like less than he truly is. It's seeing the glorious face of Jesus Christ and saying, I want that more than anything else. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So not simply one amongst the 12 who is dipping in this bowl, specifically the one to whom I give this morsel of bread. This person would have had to also been close to Jesus. When you're reclining on your left-hand side, your reach is pretty prohibited. 
You're not going to reach four people over. It seems to me that this man must have been at his left-hand side. That while John was at his right, that the betrayer, he was one on the left-hand side. This is a position of great honor to be at the left of the master. You remember the request that James and John's mother had of Jesus. She came to him and said, Lord, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. Left and right, positions of honor and privilege. John was at the right-hand side of Jesus, but it wasn't James at the left. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't even Andrew. It was the betrayer. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus had called the 12 and he knew that this was the devil who reclined at his left-hand side. And yet in another show of honor, he would give him the morsel of bread. That was an act of honor to take that first dip of the heroset. With that first morsel of bread, you handed it to the guest of honor. And so you see the Lord himself bestowing upon the man who would betray him both the position and the acts of great honor right here in the middle of this feast. Now Mark doesn't tell us who the man is. He has before. He's made clear who the betrayer is and what his plans were. Even just in every time that they list out who the apostles are, the betrayer is always listed as he who would betray Jesus. So in the middle of this night, while he will show us him coming out of the shadows, he doesn't tell us his name at this moment. Neither does Luke. It's only Matthew and John, those who are there at the feast. So again, we find great help in John's gospel. As he says, verse 26, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said these things to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him to go out and buy what they needed for the feast or that he was to give some money to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Dear friends, what you are going to do, do quickly. Can there be any more haunting words from the lips of Jesus Christ? You have set your heart on betraying me. Judas, what Satan found in you was a willing participant because you love money. You love anything, but specifically, you love money more than you love me. You have set your heart. You have bided your time. Well, my time has come. That means your time has come. And so what you will do, do it now. You notice that Jesus doesn't make an offer to him. Jesus doesn't say, well, I'll give you 40 pieces of silver because I know that's what they've offered you. He doesn't look to his 11 and say, try to stop this man. He doesn't plead with him. He looks the betrayer in the eye and says, what you are going to do, do it quickly. Don't waste your time. Don't continue to sit here at this table and pretend like you're one of us. What you're going to do, do it quickly. Judas got up, he left the place, and it was night. Feel the weight of this, dear friends. It was night. The sky was dark, and so was Judas' soul. The darkness that had come over this man. He still had opportunity to stop. He still had opportunity to turn back. He won't. His heart was too hard. His mind was too darkened. He wanted to move forward. He wanted the money more more than he wanted Jesus Christ. He thought that it was going to be worth it. Do you understand this? This man probably went out of the darkness whistling Dixie because he thought he had won. He thought he had traded the son of God for a fortune, for a treasure. He had no idea how terrifically horrible this thing was going to end. Not for Jesus. He would be abandoned and he would die in darkness. He would drink down the cup of his father's wrath, but he would rise again in power and glory. He would ascend to the right hand of his father where he reigns even today. Not for the true disciples, because this thing that Judas means for evil, Jesus Christ himself will use for their ultimate good. It's for Judas. This thing's going to end way bad for Judas. 
That's why we find at this moment Jesus looks to the rest of those around him and he says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom he has been betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. A curse upon Judas. And yet at the same time, we're reminded of the absolute sovereign control of God over this entire drama. Judas is going to go exactly as God has ordained before the beginning of time. Judas is going to go exactly as it was written of him in the Psalms by King David. Exactly as the prophet Zechariah had said hundreds of years earlier. This thing was going to happen exactly as God had decreed. And yet, Judas was acting in absolute accordance with his own will, with his own hardened heart. This wasn't a spur-of-the-moment deal. You remember that the religious leaders, they didn't come seeking Judas. Nobody forced Judas into this. Judas determined in his heart, I see something I want more than Christ. I see Christ as a means to get that something else, and therefore I will betray him. And because this was a conscious choice of Judas, because this was what his heart really desired, the full weight of that guilt would fall upon him. Of course, God had ultimately and decisively ordained that this would come to pass. It was his sovereignty that was at plan. Nothing was going to lead away from this day because it was the means by which he would save the world. And yet again, I tell you, this was the free will choice of this man called Judas. And because of that, only he is accountable for the sin which drove it. Because of this, he will stand before God and give an answer to this. Only he will face the consequences. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. A curse. Judas is damned. The weight of what awaits him. God had given Judas the gift of life. All life is precious. All life is valuable. All life is a gift from God meant to be used to the praise of his glorious grace. And what is Jesus saying here? He's saying all the goodness in this life, all the good things you've enjoyed in this life, they will seem like a distant memory compared to the horrors of hell, compared to the curse that waits you in eternity. What what does it profit a man if he gains the world and loses his soul? Judas didn't gain the world. He lost a whole lot more than that. And in the end, he lost his soul. And there is nothing that this world can offer you that's going to compare to the horrors of hell. Dear friends, you've got to see this. God gave Judas a life, a precious life, a valuable life. And what does he demand of all of us in this life? Seek my glory. And in chasing after my glory, you will find your ultimate good. Quit settling for the things of this world. And instead what Judas did was he took the goodness of this life and he used it to curse God. He used it to settle for money and trinkets and passing pleasures in this lifetime. Taking every last opportunity to consume the things of this world while turning his back on the Son of God. Selling him for a few thousand bucks. Dear friends, you must know there's no amount of treasure in this world that's going to stack up to the horrors of hell. When I was a little boy, my parents would tell me, if you do this, here's the consequence. I would step back and determine, well, then is it worth it? Because frankly, I would determine, you know what? The spanking, the grounding, the loss of privileges, it's worth it. I will go through that punishment to have the fun, to have the joy to have the pleasures of whatever this thing is that they've told me not to chase after. Dear friends, don't get it twisted. There is no man in hell today that says, well, it was worth it. Look at all the women I was with. Look at all the pleasures I enjoyed. Look at all the wealth I amassed. Look at the name that I built for myself. No difference. They're crying out from the pit of hell today. Scripture tells us that about the time that this feast was over, it was midnight. Jesus would be dead within 15 hours, but Judas would die sooner. This man was so short-sighted. 
He was so hard-hearted. He would not even get to enjoy this pittance of a ransom that he took for his treachery. The scripture tells us that when morning came and Jesus had been delivered over to Pilate, this is no more than six, maybe eight hours later after this feast is over, that Judas went out and he hung himself. We read according to Luke in the book of Acts that he fell upon the rocks below and that his bowels burst and his guts spilled out upon the rocks. I don't know how this happened. Did Judas hang there long enough that he got fat and bloated and then the limb broke? I don't know, but there can be no more fitting death for the traitor than this. But you must know that even in this death, it is nothing compared to what awaited him on the other side. As he closed his eyes in this life, he will count that death as sweet compared to what awaited him. Compared to the wrath of God that he had stored up for that day of judgment. If you're here on Wednesday night, you have some concept of what that looks like. I, I, I plead with you. I encourage you, if at all possible, come on Wednesday night. An hour isn't enough time. I preached for an hour and 15 minutes in the first, time, first hour. That wasn't enough either. An hour isn't enough time for us to go over this, but on Wednesday night we gathered and we talked about the wrath of God falling upon men. How the good gifts that God gives men, that's what, Paul, uh, what Luke talks about in Acts 2, that the good gifts that God gives men, they're meant to lead us to repentance. These gifts are meant to lead us to turn on our sin, to turn on ourselves, and run to Jesus Christ as Lord. And yet when we fail to do that, when we just hold on to the stuff and become a basin for ourselves, for our own selfish and empty and temporary enjoyment, all we're doing is storing up wrath for that day of judgment. All we're doing is storing up punishment, the righteous and just and personal and praiseworthy wrath of God waiting for us in eternity. Scripture compares it to fire. We talk about the fires of hell, and I think that's just the closest thing we have on earth because any of you that have been burned, any of you that have faced a real significant burn, you think this pain is never going away. Different than hell, it never does. The saints gather together and they sing when we've been there, speaking of heaven, 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Dear friends, the damned in hell, at the end of 10,000 years, they're no closer to the end than when they'd first begun. There is no mercy. There is no grace. There is no redo. There is no exit hatch. There is no gospel for them to cling to. Time is up. This isn't some impersonal punishment. This isn't just the force of the universe. This isn't the natural consequences of sin. This is the personal wrath of the almighty God who you have rejected. You have spurned his grace. You have blasphemed his name. You have rejected his glory. And he is furious. Night and day, day and night, in utter darkness, the wrath of this God poured out to crush the souls of those who have turned their backs on him. Dear friends, feel the weight of this. Feel the weight of this. But I tell you, don't stop here. So many people, they, they, they talk with this longing about days of old. Man, I grew up under this pastor when I was a little boy, and he would rain down hellfire and brimstone. Every week was hell, and I always went out of there feeling so bad. That's not my goal. Please don't go home and type on Facebook, man, great service today. That pastor wrecked me. I don't want to wreck you. I want to lift you up. I want God to save you from the horrors of hell. But I want you to see what you are escaping. I want you to see what awaits those that turn their back on him. Because those that are there now, they surely wish they had never even been conceived. Not just Judas, all. All who die in separation from Christ. All who die in their sin. The sweet old lady down the block who wouldn't hurt a fly. Who makes cookies for her neighbors and watches after her grandchildren. 
The man who works hard and pays his taxes and mows his lawn and never misses his boy's ball game. People who sit in church houses just like this, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, who wake up on Monday morning and read their Bibles and have their quiet time and pay their tithe and don't cheat on their wife and don't use foul language and don't get drunk, but never get around to repenting and giving their life to Jesus Christ. Those two sit under the eternal wrath of the Almighty God, utterly condemned. Those men who don't go after the hard and the big and the grandiose betrayal of a Judas it is the soft and silent betrayal of the average American Christian life. Enjoying the good gifts of God and never truly turning to him. So that when the clock in their life runs out, they find no place for forgiveness, no place for repentance, nothing but wrath. Dear friends, do not assume that you have until death to make this call because what you will find in the life of Judas is that long before he tied that noose around his neck, his time was up. His fate was sealed. We read in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27, that after Jesus had been handed over to Pilate, that he returns to the Sanhedrin. We say that Judas, the betrayer, he saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And he said, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went to hang himself. Judas changed his mind. Metamelomai is the word in Greek. It can mean sorrow. It can mean remorse. It can mean regret. And certainly with that comes the change of mind. He wished that he hadn't done this thing. He regrets that it happened. He realized that he had betrayed the only innocent man that had ever lived. He wanted to undo the deal, but he couldn't. They wouldn't take the money back. But dear friend, I submit to you this morning that even then, even then, even when he saw that these men won't turn back, they won't go and demand Jesus back from Pilate that his life may be spared, that even then, if he would throw himself at the feet of Jesus Christ, this would have ended way, way differently. Had Judas turned, had he run to Jesus and cried out for mercy, had he thrown himself at his feet, not remorse, repentance. Don't you see? Remorse isn't enough. Feeling guilty is enough. That's why I say, don't leave this place feeling wrecked. Do something about it. There's not enough regret in all the world to fix our problem. There's not enough remorse and feeling bad and tears of sorrow that's going to fix the problem. Again, I say, Judas didn't need remorse. He needed repentance, true and saving repentance. He needed his regret. He needed his conviction. He needed his sorrow to drive him to Jesus Christ. Not to regret that he had ever been born. Not to give up his life. But you know what Judas showed in this? He showed that he didn't love Jesus. He hated the feeling of guilt. He killed himself because he said, I just don't want to feel bad anymore. How many men come to church for that purpose? They do these religious acts. It's not that they love Jesus. It's they can't stand their own conscience. They can't stand the weight of their sin. And they don't do the only thing they're called to do. Then run to Jesus. Carry it all to him. Had Judas done that? Had he come to Jesus and said, I'm a sinner. I'm the most wretched man that ever lived. I've betrayed you. I've handed you over to men that seek to destroy you, and I have nothing to offer you in exchange. There's nothing that I can do. Burn offerings, sacrifices, there's no religious act. There's no good works. There's no offering. There's nothing that I can give you to make this thing right. I hate what I've done. I hate what I've done not just because of the way it makes me feel, not just because of the way you people look at me. I hate what I've done because it attempts to rob your glory. I settled for something less than that which is greatest, and I hate what I've done, and I see you as my ultimate treasure. I see you as my only hope and my ultimate treasure. I see what I've given up. 
I see how foolish I was. I see how hard-hearted I was. I see how shallow I was. I give it all up and I ask you to wash me clean. I don't dare promise you I'll never do it again because I know how weak I am. I know how stupid I am. I know how foolish I am. I want to do better. I never want to do this again. But I don't dare stand before you, Jesus, and promise I'm never going to do this again. All I'm doing is throwing myself at your feet and saying, I want you more than anything. So do whatever you got to do to give me you. Wash me cleansed. Make me cleansed. Wash me clean. Expose and clean out my heart. Don't you see how different this is from remorse? This is a picture of true repentance. Is it emotional? Sure, but it's a whole lot more than emotion. Don't give me empty emotion. Do you know how many men have sat in my office and cried through great tears, great remorse, great emotion over all they have done, headed straight to the pits of hell? Don't you understand that the enemy, don't you understand that Satan himself can conjure up false emotion? He can conjure up these emotional experiences in your life that can convince you that you must be saved and convince you that you must have repented. And he's using churches all throughout this country to do exactly that. They're using these emotional experiences, these worship services, to convince you, well, I cried today, so I must be saved. I felt sorry over what I've done, so I must be saved. I sang really loud about Jesus, so I must be saved. Your friends, that's not it. It's turning and trusting in him. It's knowing your helplessness. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's your only hope, repent. Don't just sit there and feel sorry. Don't just sit there and be wrecked. Run to Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Repent of your own efforts. Repent of your religion if it's led you away from him. Then throw yourself upon him. But Judas wouldn't do this. Judas wouldn't do this. Had he, Jesus would have received him because Jesus never turns away a heart that comes like this. And Judas knew this. He knew every bit of it because not only he heard Jesus preach it, he had preached it himself. He had gone out and healed men. He had cast out demons. He had led men to faith in Jesus Christ by the preaching of this gospel that he now neglected. People might be tempted to ask, was Judas a real apostle? Of course. He was called and chosen and set apart. He was equipped and given the authority to go out and preach this gospel. But you must recognize that God can use you to preach the gospel. God can use you to lead other men to saving faith while you yourself are damned. This gospel that Judas proclaimed, it didn't guarantee his salvation. As a matter of fact, I submit to you this morning that it only left him so hard that he could never really repent. He was inoculated to the gospel. He had had just enough of it. He had seen the power that there was no turning. He was completely unable to repent. The text that David read earlier this morning, Hebrews 6, I don't know what all that means. Don't come to me afterwards and tell me to explain it to you. I'm not there yet. But what we read in Hebrews 6, tell me this isn't a picture of Judas. Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Judas was enlightened. He knew the gospel. He had seen the gospel. He proclaimed the gospel. Who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. He knew the works of God. He had seen the heavenly gifts. He had participated in handing out these heavenly gifts. Verse 5, and having tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. How do we know the kingdom of God is at hand? Because of the miracles that Jesus was doing. He joined Jesus in these miracles. He had tasted the gifts and the power of the age to come. And yet because of this, it was impossible for that man, after he has fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucified once again, the Son of God, to their own harm, and they're holding him up to contempt. This isn't saying that Judas had repented and he can't go back to repentance. This is saying whatever we call repentance over here, the sorrow, the remorse, the regret, 
that he lived so long in that place that he no longer could find a place for true and saving repentance. This is Judas. This is Judas. He had every possible opportunity. There is no man roaming around the fires of hell that has less of an excuse than this man called Judas. He had been placed at the feet of Jesus Christ, the son of the most high God, experienced things that you and I have not, and yet he turned his back. And in the end, because of this, because he had seen it all when he fell away, there was no place for repentance. Where could there be? Not saved by this. What then is going to save you? What am I going to tell you? People, do you understand this? What then is he going to tell you? What then is he going to show you? What then is he going to present to you? And do you see the shame that this brings on the name of Jesus Christ? Because what Judas declares to everyone around him, one of the 12, I'm one of Jesus' closest followers. I've seen things that you people will never see, and I declare to you 30 pieces of silver is worth more than that. I tasted the goodness of the kingdom of God, and what I declare to you is the treasures of this earth are better than that. Do you see the shame this seeks to bring on the name of Jesus Christ? And do you see then why in that place God says, very well, I hand you over. I hand you over and you shall find no more opportunity for remorse, or for repentance, excuse me, only remorse. And again, this isn't just Judas. This happens to men and women sitting in churches like this all around the world. Men who sit under the preaching of God's word, surrounded by people truly influenced by the spirit of God sensing the movement and the gifts of the spirit of God maybe holding official positions within the church looking just like all the other people and yet in the end they find no room for repentance they become so hardened in their heart so inoculated to the true gospel they never turn and give themselves to him never truly repent of their sins but even scarier than this Scarier than the man that marches out and hands Jesus over to the Sanhedrin. Scarier than the man that turns his back on the church and walks away is the one that continues on in this place beginning believing he's safe. The one who continues on presenting himself as one of the sheep. The one who continues on at the table of Jesus Christ who will come, we're taking communion next week, men who will come to the table of Jesus Christ believing themselves saved, having no clue the degree to which they have betrayed him. Dear friends, you cannot assume that you are good. You cannot assume that you are safe. That's what Jesus warns us in Matthew 7, 21. He talks about those who will come to the end and say, Lord, Lord. He says this in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Tell me you see this. These men believed. And yet what Jesus is saying here, this isn't a parable. This is a promise. There will be many men, many men. The gate is narrow, the road is hard, few will find it. There will be many men on that day who think they are saved, who think they have a place in the kingdom of God, who think that they have eternal life, and he never knew them. How many people run around with shirts on it and say, I know Jesus, and Jesus says, funny, I don't know you. And you see why? Because these men rested all their hope on all the things that they had done. We cast out demons, we prophesied, we preached your word. We walked down an aisle, we said a prayer, we were dunked in a booth, we preached sermons, we sang solos on microphones, we taught Sunday school, we were deacons in churches. Let us in. Don't we get a golden pass? But you notice what was missing here. What they should have said was, Lord, we've done nothing. We've done nothing to deserve entrance into your kingdom. As a matter of fact, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. But you've done it all. You took our sin upon yourself. You died upon the cross. You drank down your father's wrath. You raised again in glory. And therefore, I throw myself upon you. I contribute nothing. Even in my coming to you and falling on my knees, even in my repentance, this is your work in my life. Dear friends, I plead with you to see this. 
Judas is in hell today. He felt plenty sorry for the things that he had tried to do. He put plenty of effort in trying to undo the things that he had done, and that means nothing. There are men that have done plenty of mighty works. Judas went out and he preached the gospel. He watched men come to Christ. He did miraculous works. That means nothing because it did not lead him to repentance in Jesus Christ. His sorrow, his grief, his works, all of those things wasted. They accounted for nothing because they did not lead him to turn and trust in Jesus Christ. And at some point, it was too late. So dear friends, I plead with you today. I plead with you today. Don't wait. You have any idea how many men are crying out from the pits of hell? Gnashing their teeth and crying out. And in this lifetime, they knew. They knew the gospel. They preached the gospel. They could recite the gospel, but they never repented. Maybe their works were just a cover-up for their repentance. Dear friends, maybe you need to step back from your works for a minute and see what you've got left. Maybe a season of rest would do you well to step back and ask, what am I left with if I'm not a man that does all these works? What am I left with if I'm not known as the man that preaches, the man that sings, the man that leads, the man that other people look up to? What am I left with if I'm there? Or perhaps others of you, you sit in this place and you go, well, tomorrow, tomorrow I'll truly repent. I feel bad today, but tomorrow I'll do something about it. Tomorrow I'll turn to Jesus Christ. Dear friends, tomorrow may never come, not just because you may die in your sleep tonight, because God may hand you over once and for all. He may say, that door is shut. Dear friends, cry out today. You may find yourself like Esau. Through many tears of sorrow, he regretted. Scripture uses the word that he could find no repentance, and yet he had plenty of remorse over all that he had given up for a bowl of soup, and yet he was completely unable to find repentance. How many of you will find yourself in that place if you continue to harden your heart? If you refuse to do the thing because the cost is too high, it's going to cost you too much, and people are going to find out who you really are if you were to truly repent the way the Bible calls us to repent. And in the end, you will find that you have no place to turn to Jesus Christ, not because you want to and he rejects you because your heart's too hard because you've resisted too long and he has handed you over to the thing that you want and the gospel will no longer penetrate your heart. You've heard all the sermons, you know all the words, you've seen all the works and you say to your heart, maybe we should repent. And they say, yes, but let's be reasonable. Can't we have the world too? I know what the Bible says. I know what the gospel says. I know what I see in other people's life, but let's not get crazy with this thing. We can have the world and Jesus too. Let's just go find our own way. And you never get around to coming to Jesus Christ. So I plead with you today. Apostle Paul uses the term examination. He calls us to examine ourselves. He's talking to the church in Corinth. He's not talking to avowed atheists. He's talking to professing believers. He's saying, examine yourself to see whether you're of the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not know that you yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet this test. Test yourself. Dear friends, if you're not willing to examine yourself, if you're not willing to test yourself, be very, very alarmed. How many men sit in a place like this and they feel all haughty and high, almost boastful about the security that they feel in their salvation? No need to examine myself. No need to test myself. Look at all that I've done. Look at all that I've accomplished. I feel nothing in my heart that makes me feel guilty. I'm not going to go and examine myself. But dear friends, at the end of this life, what you find out is it's because they were afraid of what it would cost them. I think I've got a cavity right now. I'm pretty sure I got a cavity right now. Dennis bills have been racking up in the SEAL family. So guess what? I'm not going for an examination because I don't want to pay the cost. Do you see? I won't go and be examined by Jesus Christ because what if he asked me for that? What if he demands of me this? 
I don't know how many times I've had men come into my office and I'll ask them, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And they'll say yes. And I'll say, very well, tell me what that means. They go, what? what? I just meant that I'd said that one magic prayer that they told me got me into heaven. How many times have you stood in places like this and listened to men who died and you looked at them and you saw no evidence. They ran like wild dogs. You saw no evidence that they were followers of Jesus Christ. And yet a stupid preacher would stand up in a pulpit like this and say, oh, in vacation Bible school when he was seven, he gave his life to Jesus. No. No. What fruit do you see in your life that you have turned and repented of your sin and given your life to Jesus Christ? Don't tell me about the things you do. You're no different than the man in Matthew 7 if you're talking about the things that you have done. I'm talking about spirit-wrought fruit in your life, things that look nothing like the flesh. Things that can in no way point men back to you and to your reputation. Things that you could not do in the flesh. I'm talking about the working of the Holy Spirit that only he can bring. These men were plenty sorrowful. One after another, Jesus goes around the table. I, I, I commend them for this. They felt the sorrow in their heart despite they didn't see any evidence that this was them. And one after another, they said, Lord, is it I? Now look, you've got to know that self-examination can be a very dangerous thing. Not just because of what God might reveal, but because in our own sinful hearts, we can very quickly turn self-examination into self-absorption. We can become so consumed for ourselves and constantly grading every day of our life and have some little scorecard that we think we're going to earn our way into the kingdom. Or, Look, I've done enough to prove that I'm saved today. Oh, yesterday I didn't do enough to prove that I was saved. You become like a little parakeet sitting on his perch looking at itself in the mirror, just the mirror of your own soul. You're so consumed with this, you never get back to Jesus Christ. Dear friend, Satan will use that too. Satan is such a master of disguise, he will use the gift of examination to turn you right back into yourself. He's like a jujitsu master. Oh, you want to come to Jesus? Watch me throw you right back into yourself. You're so consumed with yourself again. You're so wrapped up in yourself. And so there is great care that we need to take in this. But how do we know? How do we know when it's time to come to this moment of self-examination? In these men's life, it was the sin of another. When they heard about the treachery of another. Dear friends, when you hear about the falling away of someone else, when you hear about the betrayal of someone else, when you hear about someone else that looked and sounded and lived just like you for a season wandering away, does that cause you to tremble? That's part of the gift of church discipline, by the way, friends. When it becomes necessary that you bring the sins of others out into the the light, not just for the sake of that man's soul, but for the sake of everyone else that is sitting out there, that they might hear and fear. This should cause us to examine ourselves. If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you'll crawl out with King David and say, search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous thing within me and lead me in the way of eternal life. There's too much at stake here. So God, whatever it costs, however uncomfortable it is, no matter what this looks like, come and search me. Come and expose me. Come and show me what's there. Beloved, have you ever truly known the way to sin? If you truly believed in the horrors of hell, if you really knew your own weakness, if you really knew your ability to be deceived by even your own heart, you would come to him like this. You would beg him to examine you like this. But the deceived man, the poser, the imposter, this is way too personal. This is way too uncomfortable. He wouldn't sit through a sermon like this. I commend you people that you haven't gotten up and walked out yet. I do pray that you haven't shut me out yet. I do pray that you won't hit that door and they go, well, that guy was really out there, wasn't he? Pray that you allow the weight of this to cause you to examine yourselves. You pray to God that it doesn't become self-consumption, that it drives you to Christ. That's the goal in all this. Your good works, your sorrow, your remorse, your repentance, 
your examination, they all must drive you to Jesus Christ. You want to know when you've gotten off track? When it doesn't lead to him. All roads lead to Jesus. The minute you find at the end of this something, something other than his glory, you've got off track. Go back and try again. Go grab a brother and ask them to help you. But you must be willing to come to him. And we cannot even trust our own hearts in this. The same Paul that said, examine yourself, he also said, but I don't even judge myself. He said, I'm aware of nothing within me that disqualifies me. I'm aware of nothing within me that tells me that I'm not a true and sincere follower of Jesus Christ, but it's he who judges me. And so I long for that day when he comes and the light of his glory will so expose my heart that I will know everything that's in the darkest recesses. I don't trust my heart because my heart's a liar. I don't trust my heart because my heart's deceptive. I don't trust my heart because I know the pull of my flesh. And so I come to him. I come to Jesus, and it's there when I'm, ga- when I'm judged by his standard, when I'm examined by him, when my life is held up against the glory of him, his holy perfection, it's only then that you're going to see, wow, I'm gross. There's a problem here. It will drive you to your knees. So you must come to Christ. That's why I hold him before you every single week. Week after week, I continue to push you up against the reality of Jesus Christ so that you cannot leave this place saying, well, I don't see anything contrary to myself to the gospel. I, I mean, my heart's clean. I don't know what everybody else's problem is. I find myself clean. Because our hearts are deceitful. So I continue to try to expose you to the light of Jesus Christ so that you can't escape. So that you can't find anywhere to hide. So that he can show you what's really there. Church, this is our first and greatest offense. is to come and stand before the glorious light of Jesus Christ. To be exposed to him, to the light of his gospel, and to there be changed. But dear friends, you've got to understand, you've got to be coming to the real Jesus. Bodie Bauckham said something this week. I hardly ever quote other pastors, but Bodie Bauckham this week said, the modern church is producing passionate people with empty heads who love the Jesus they do not know. Is that not the state of the modern church? They sing love songs to a Jesus that never existed. Again, I go back to the analogy of parakeets singing love songs to themselves in the mirror that sits across from them. They've created a Jesus that's made in their own image. They don't know the Jesus of the Bible. They claim to know Jesus, but on the other end of this life, he's going to declare, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you because they never take the time to know the Jesus of the Bible. That's why I've warned you. So many times I've warned you. If you find yourself willing to sing Christ-exalting worship songs, listen, I felt the spirit moving in this service this morning. As we sang these songs of praise, as we lifted up our songs, I pray that your heart went with your lips as you sang these songs of Christ-exalting praise to God. But you've got to understand, at the minute that music is stripped away, you ain't so into Jesus anymore, then you don't love Jesus. You love the way singing powerful songs about Jesus makes you feel. You're delighting in yourself. If what you demand of a preacher is, look, our praise songs can be all about Jesus, but when the preacher gets up, I need five hints to make my life better. I need five steps to a better marriage. Tell me all the ways that God's going to bless me here and now. Tell some jokes and tell some funny stories. Why are you so heavy on the Jesus all the time? Dear friends, if that's you, take great care. You need to know that Jesus had manufactured in his mind a Jesus of his own making. He believed that he could hold on to the treasures of this world and Jesus too. And so Jesus backed him into a corner and said, what you're going to do, do it quickly. That's what I aim to do in here. That's what I aim to do in here. Dear friends, you're going to answer to God someday. I want to introduce you to that God today. Not that the day of judgment has come, not that it's too late, but I will not stand before God and answer for why I've not pushed you people to know the God of the Bible, to determine today whether or not you are truly in Christ. 
I cannot afford and you cannot afford to leave this life believing you're in a Jesus that has never existed and it cannot save you. And so Jesus pushed Judas up against, this is who I really am, so what you're going to do, you do it quickly. And as soon as Judas realized that Jesus wasn't the Jesus he wanted, he wandered away. Dear friends, you must know that the true gospel of Jesus Christ is a thing that divides. It doesn't just divide the real Christians from the kind of soft Christians. It doesn't divide the radical Christians from the everyday Christians. It it divides the Christians from the sons of the devil. And so we will not. We will not preach any other gospel. The same Paul said to the Galatians, he said, if anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the true gospel, the apostolic gospel, the gospel that you find in the Holy Scriptures, that man is to be accursed. Do you see how many men out there are preaching false gospels to their own heart? Just to calm their guilt? Just to make themselves feel better? They're preaching a false gospel to themselves because they're afraid of what the real gospel might cost. And yet so many men, they come into churches like this and they sit under the weight of the true gospel. For the first time in their life, they're exposed to the real gospel. Not because I'm some real gospel preacher, because I'm stupid enough, I don't have anything else to give you. You realize you hired a preacher that hadn't been to seminary? You realize you hired a preacher that hadn't been on staff at a church anywhere? You realize you hired a preacher that doesn't know anything about preaching? What were you thinking? But I got nothing else. And I think that works to your advantage. And yet people will come into this place and now hear the gospel, the real gospel of Jesus Christ, and they leave this place feeling hopeless. They find no hope because they realize the impossibility of their situation, but they won't get off the path. They won't let loose of their plans. And so they refuse to submit. The cost is too high. They say, I find no hope in this. I see no assurance here. These words are too heavy. They're too serious. Where's the room for my joy in this? And then rather than sitting under the weight of this and looking up and saying, Lord, is it I? Am I the one that's deceived here? Am I the one that's going to betray you here? They keep shopping until they find another gospel that tickles their ears. They keep shopping until they find a gospel that makes them feel good. They keep shopping until they find a preacher that tells them, no, brother, you're good, you're good, you're good. They surround themselves in a church full of lost people so they can grade on the curve and go, well, if they're all Christians, and I must be too. Friends, we won't do it. We won't do it. For the glory of God, for the love of each other, we stick to this gospel. We will not preach any Jesus that does not exist, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us, no matter how bad it makes us look, no matter how weak and helpless, because we know that's the only gospel that's gonna drive us to our knees, to true and saving repentance. We're gonna continue to preach this gospel to each other and to ourselves, saying, choose what you're going to do, but do it now. Don't keep wasting time in this place. You only may, may be hardening yourself. Submit to Jesus or be lost forever. So we preach this gospel, refusing to settle where we are, continually going deeper, never reaching the point. You realize you've never vested in eternity. You know what that word means, vested? Usually you use it with 401Ks. Like I've been here long enough, all of that is mine. That's not the way this thing works. He says those who endure to the end will be saved. It's not you repent in a moment, you go, hey, I'm vested in heaven, now I can go do what I want to do. No, it is every day of your life repenting. It is every day of your life trusting in Jesus Christ. And if you turn short at the end, You turn away at the end. We celebrated Miss Jeanette Pennington's life yesterday. I stood before these people with complete assurance. I said, Jeanette lives. Not because she did some stuff one day, because she did the stuff till her very last day. Because she suffered with Christ till the very last day. Because she didn't count the treasure of this world as a thing. She said to die as Christ because I'd rather be with him. I'd rather give all these things away. And so we don't stop short and assume we've made it. We don't assume we've got enough knowledge of the Bible. We don't assume we've seen enough of Jesus. You know that's what heaven is. It's more and more and more of Jesus. We never get to the end of him. It's a new mystery every day unfolded. If you stop short and you think you've had enough now, what hope do you have in heaven? 
So we press on deeper and deeper and deeper. Are our emotions going to be involved? Buddy, you bet. You hear my voice? Is there going to be fruit in a transformed life? There better be. You're a new creation in him. But you must realize it's only in the face of his glory, the light of his glorious grace, that you'll be truly exposed, that your remorse will come to true, hope-filled repentance. It won't be a burden. It won't be a burden. You'll find true and lasting joy, real assurance for the first time. Do you know why so many men doubt? Listen, good Christians doubt. I doubt. You doubt. We doubt. Doubt's not the problem. Again, it's what you do with the doubt. The problem with so many Christians is it isn't that they doubt. It's that once they doubt, they turn and they run away. I'm telling you to go deeper, to look that doubt in the face and to run deeper with it to Jesus Christ. It's there that you'll find true joy. It's there that you'll find real assurance. It's there that he'll continually whisper, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. So we keep going to the glorious light of his face, pure joy in knowing that we are truly forgiven, that our salvation was never in our own hands, that we never earned it and we could never lose it. We come by the work of the Spirit, repentant trust, crying out to him, trusting in his promises. He will lose none from his hand. You see, there's another one that was Satan was after on this night. That's Peter. Jesus looks to him and he says, look, Peter's after you, Satan. He's wanting to sift you, but I have prayed for you because I'm the great high priest. I'm the intercessor. I'm the one that holds your salvation in my hand. And I have prayed for you, Peter, that when you fall, you will turn again. Don't sit in this place thinking that if you're truly repenting, you're truly following after Jesus Christ, that somehow he's going to let loose of you. Dear friends, if you're his, you're his, and he will never let go. If you're his, he is interceding for you right now. Your soul is safe and secure in him. Dear friends, that's a place of joy. That's a place of assurance. That's a place of hope. That's a place of true endurance in the middle of suffering, that I am his, that he is mine, that he is working for my good, that no matter how badly I fail, that I'm secure in his hand. And so you sit here today and you go, how do I know? How do I know? How do I know if I'm his? How do I know if I'm not too far gone? How do I know that he hadn't forgiven up on, given up on me? How do I know that I can really repent? Can you repent? Like nobody had it. Lazarus didn't look at Mary and Martha and go, am I really alive? No, they went, dude, you just ran and ate and took a nap. You're alive. That's what live people do. Can you repent? Can you allow the sorrow and the weight of your sin to drive you to Jesus Christ? Do you see him as truly glorious? Do you want him more than anything else? Is he your ultimate treasure and your ultimate joy? Then you're saved. What you will do, do it quickly and run to him. Too many men, they get paralyzed by this. Well, what if I'm not chosen? What if I'm not chosen? What if I'm not chosen? Do you want him? Dear friends, this is the hope of the gospel. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the gospel that will save your soul, and this is the gospel that will cause you to endure to your very last breath. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the glorious light of your gospel. We thank you for the reality that our salvation was never ours to gain. It was never ours to lose. I thank you for this people that is willing to sit through a message like this. Just the weight, the conviction, and indeed, yes, the sorrow that comes from the awareness that we have done so badly so many times. But that they wouldn't stop there. They would press on to true hope and true joy and lasting assurance. Father, minister to their hearts right now. If I've wounded them, if I've unnecessarily wounded them, Father, I don't want to come to them and whisper false assurance. I want you to minister to their hearts. I want you to send your Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. 
Father, I don't want to give men false assurance. I don't want to give them pats on the back. I do not want to whisper sweet love songs into their ears while they march towards the pits of hell. Father, only you know where they are. Only you can bring true conviction and true salvation and true endurance. So I'm pleading with you, God, to get me out of the way and do what you can do. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.